Section 17 of Mysteries of London, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brian Keenan. Mysteries of London, Volume 4, by George W. M. Reynolds. Elucidations. At the conclusion of the 124th chapter, we asked whether Charles Hatfield would succeed in crushing the sentiments of curiosity that had been awakened within him? Alas, no, it was impossible. His better feelings, aroused by the startling remembrance of the assurances he had respectively given his father and mother, had for a few hours triumphed over that insatiable longing to penetrate into the mysteries of the past. But when he again found himself alone in his chamber, in the silence of night, he could not subdue the thoughts which forced themselves upon him, and which were all connected with those mysteries. Thus was it that we again find him pacing his chamber while others slept, pacing up and down in an agitated and excited manner, and maintaining a desperate struggle within his own soul. For the irresistible temptation which beset him was to ponder once more and deeply on the incidents of his early days, and to endeavor to retrieve from the abysses of his memory any other recollections that might be slumbering there. For the sake of the pledge given to his mother, for the sake of the assurance made to his father, he strove, yes, sincerely, ardently he strove, to vanquish that temptation. Yet he could not. Human nature possessed not so grand a power. He might have ruled his actions by his will, but his thoughts defied all control. Yielding, therefore, at length to their current, he was whirled along by the same eddying tide of reflections which had swept him through so considerable a portion of the preceding night. And now the efforts of memory, by one of those superhuman strainings which, while they seem as if they must break the very fibers of the brain, also appear to evoke a sudden flash from the depth of some profound cerebral cell. Those powerful and painful efforts in a moment, as it were, established a connection between the name of Benjamin Bones and the murder of Tamar. Yes, Charles Hatfield suddenly became aware that the name and the incident were in some way associated, and he necessarily supposed that in his childhood he had heard facts mentioned which had created that impression at the time, but the nature of which he could not now for the life of him recall to memory. This impression was probably vague even at the period when it was engendered, because Charles recollected full well that the utmost caution was adopted by those around him not to discourse upon the particulars of the foul murder in his presence, nor even to respond otherwise than evasively to the questions he put, he being a mere child at the time. As the young gentleman paced up and down, his mind laboring with the new reminiscence which had arisen within, it suddenly struck him that there were means of informing himself of all and every detail of that murder, whereof he at present entertained only a vague and general impression of its atrocity. His long absence on the continent had prevented him from ever, even accidentally, falling in with an English book of criminal annals, or a file of English newspapers, to which he might have referred, had the thought struck him so to do. But now what was to restrain him from making those searches which would throw every light on an occurrence of such fearful interest? Scarcely was this idea conceived, when the means of instantaneously carrying it into execution suggested itself. For Charles Hatfield remembered that, in the well-stored library of the mansion, he had observed a complete set of the annual register, 
from the very origin of that useful work until the most recent date of its publication. And now he trembled from head to foot, he literally gasped for breath, at the thought of being enabled to tear away the veil of mystery from at least one incident which was so materially connected with his childhood. For Tamar had been as a mother to him during the few months that he was in her care. There was in his soul a deep and yet undefined presentiment that he stood on the threshold of strange discoveries, that important revelations were about to be made to him, and, without being superstitious, he bent to the influence of this solemn but dim forecasting, this awe-inspiring but vague prescience. Taking the lamp in his hand, he stole gently from his chamber, descended the wide and handsome staircase, traversed a long corridor, in the niches of which stood beautiful specimens of sculpture, and entered the spacious library. On each side of the door was a marble statue as large as life, and the young man started, but only for a moment, as the white and motionless effigies stood out suddenly as if it were from the deep darkness which the lamp illumined. It was not that he had forgotten such statues were there, nor that he was positively frightened at their appearance, but his soul was influenced by one of those presentiments which are of themselves superstitions in character, and moreover he was on the point of seeking information relative to the details of a foul and horrible murder. Instantly recovering himself, and blushing at his fears, he advanced into the library, closing the door carefully behind him. Then, approaching a particular range of shelves, he reached down the annual register for the year 1827. In less than a minute he was seated at the table, with the book opened at the proper place before him, and greedily, oh, how greedily he plunged, as it were, into its contents. But, great heavens, why starts he thus? What discovery has he made? What revelation has been afforded him? He learns, with a frightful sinking of the heart, that Rainford was a highwayman, that he had been executed at Horsemonger Lane Jail, that he had been resuscitated by some means or another with which the writer was unacquainted, that he had reappeared in London in the disguise of a blackamoor, and that he had received the royal pardon for all his crimes. These details were incidentally given in the course of the narrative of the foul murder of Tamar, who was represented to have been Rainford's wife. Now also Charles Hatfield discovered how terrific was the connection between the name of Benjamin Bones and the assassination of that ill-fated daughter of Israel. Yes, and he perceived, too, that Benjamin Bones and Old Death were one and the same individual. And he shuddered from head to foot as he perused, nay, almost rushed through the details of the crime which had been committed nineteen years previously, in the subterranean cells belonging to a house in Red Lion Street, Clerkenwell. But Charles Hatfield is not satisfied with what he has already devoured, for we can scarcely use the word red. His curiosity to know more has become insatiable, and guided by the hints and the observations occurring in the narrative of the murder, he refers to an earlier page in that volume, in order to obtain a full and complete insight into the trial and condemnation of Rainford, that Rainford whom he had loved so well. The whole particulars were given in detail and with accuracy. The robbery of Sir Christopher Blunt, the capture of Rainford by Dykes and his myrmidons in Locksfields, the trial, the condemnation, and the execution. Charles read, read on with horrified feelings which often threatened to get the better of him. 
but there was one point in the evidence which riveted his attention. Dykes, the officer, in explaining the mode in which the highwaymen had been taken into custody, used these words. When I and my people gained admittance into the house in Brandon Street, the prisoner was in bed with his mistress, a Jewess. Then, thought Charles Hatfield immediately, Tamar was not his wife. Ah, that is clear enough, although the narrative of the murder would imply otherwise. But the only inference that can be drawn from this discrepancy is that the reporter of the assassination was delicately and judiciously sparing of the feelings of the Medina family. Whereas, in the former case, it was absolutely necessary to record the evidence just as it was given. Poor Tamar, no wonder that thy name is never mentioned now by those who once knew thee. No wonder that even thy very sister, the Countess of Ellingham, seems to have forgotten thee. Thus, Charles Hatfield suddenly adopted the belief that Tamar was not Rainford's wife. Neither, indeed, was she at the time when Rainford was arrested by Mr. Dykes. And it never struck the young man that the matrimonial ceremony might have been performed between the period of Rainford's resuscitation and the murder of the Jewish lady. For when the nuptial blessing was performed in Paris, Charles, being then a mere boy, was not present at the proceedings which took place as privately as possible in the British ambassador's chapel. As for his suspicion that the Countess of Ellingham was ashamed to breathe the name of Tamar, oh, the reader may judge how erroneous was that belief. In her heart of hearts did the generous Esther treasure the image of that dearly beloved sister. And if neither herself nor her noble husband ever breathed her name, it was through kind feelings towards Mr. Hatfield and motives of delicacy in respect to Georgiana. But Charles, being as yet ignorant that his father and Rainford were one and the same person, could not possibly suspect the necessity for the exercise of such kind feelings on the one hand, or such delicacy on the other. And thus, murmured Charles to himself, as he closed the book which had made such marvelous and horrifying revelations. And thus, Thomas Rainford was a highwayman. The good, kind-hearted, generous man who loved me was a felon, a criminal. He passed through the hands of the public executioner. Oh, my God, what dreadful things have I this night learnt, he exclaimed aloud, pressing his hand to his forehead. But how came this Thomas Rainford to have the care of me? How was it that my parents could have left me so long in his hands, or at his disposal? Oh, no wonder! No wonder that Mr. de Medina and Esther should have charged me, when first they left me at school, never to mention the name of Rainford. And now, how many gaps in the earliest portion of my reminiscences are filled up? That absence of Mr. Rainford for several weeks, during which period I pined after him, that constant weeping of Tamar, then the removal to Mr. de Medina's house, and the sudden revival of joy which Tamar experienced there. But a highwayman, a felon, a criminal, oh, what awful mysteries envelop all this matter still! For the Earl of Ellingham was intimate with Rainford, and it was said, I remember, that at Mr. de Medina's death he left to this same Rainford a large fortune. A fortune to whom? To the seducer of his daughter? To one who had passed through the hands of the public executioner? And Lord Ellingham was intimate with the man who seduced the sister of his intended wife, and Esther was friendly likewise with him who ruined that sister. Gracious God, all this is most unaccountable, so unaccountable 
that I am lost and bewildered. But most mysterious, ten thousand times the most mysterious of all these incidents, is that one grand fact to which I cannot but recur. How could my parents have left me in the care of a highwayman? Tis true that he received the royal pardon, but that pardon, ah, the register says that it was procured through the interest of Lady Hatfield. That Dykes, an officer of justice, was present at the time when that lady announced, Just heavens, a light breaks in upon my soul. Oh, no, no, and yet that resemblance. May God have mercy upon me. And the young man, groaning bitterly, bitterly in the anguish of his spirit, fell back in his chair, covering his face with his hands. Yes, a light had indeed broken in upon him, elucidating a terrible mystery in a terrible manner. Lady Georgiana Hatfield had procured the royal pardon. Lady Georgiana Hatfield must therefore have had strong reasons thus to exert herself in behalf of a convicted felon, who had passed through the hands of the hangman, but had been recalled to life and restored to the world in some wondrous manner. But of what nature were those potent reasons? Naturally did it strike Charles Hatfield that love must have been the cause. And when he recollected the resemblance which existed between his own father and that Thomas Rainford who had once been his friend and protector, it flashed to his mind that he in whom Lady Hatfield had shown such tender interest, even to the compromising of her fair fame in the eyes of the world, he for whom she had so far stepped aside from the precise course of female delicacy as to implore the royal pardon, he it must be who was her husband. Yes, yes, it was now as clear as the sun at noonday. Mr. Hatfield and Thomas Rainford were one and the same individual, and he, Charles Hatfield, was the son of a highwayman who had been tried, convicted, and ushered through all the ignominious ordeal of the scaffold. For several minutes the young man sat motionless, crushed, stupefied, astounded by the appalling truth which he had elicited from his fatal investigations into the past. For several minutes it must have been a mere balancing of chances whether he should awake from that dreadful reverie to the light of reason once more, or suddenly start up a howling, hopeless maniac. But this latter condition was not to be his frightful doom. By degrees, by very slow degrees, he recovered so much of his self-possession and composure as to be enabled to look his misfortune in the face, and even fall into additional reflections on the subject. Yes, Thomas Rainford and Mr. Hatfield are the same individual, and he is my father. It was but little more than nineteen years ago, when the trial and the ordeal of the gallows took place, and I am twenty-five. Was my mother, was Lady Hatfield my father's wife at that time? In other words, am I legitimate? As God is my judge, said my father yesterday, she has never been guilty of weakness or frailty. Then what am I to believe? That my father and my mother were married privately in an honorable manner? and that I was the offspring of that lawful union? Then, that my father deserted my mother, and became enamored of Tamar, whom he took as his mistress? And lastly, that after Tamar's death my parents were reunited? This, this must be the truth. And therefore my father deceived me not when he so emphatically proclaimed my mother's virtue and my legitimacy. But, oh, my God, well might he have said that 
the weightiest reasons had alone induced him and my mother to practice a deception towards myself and the world, in respect to the degree of relationship in which I really stood with regard to them. Yes, for the world perhaps dates the marriage of my parents only from the time when they were reunited a few years after Tamar's death, and hence the necessity of calling me their nephew. I understand it all now. Oh, yes, I understand it all too well. I am legitimate, but I am the son of a highwayman. My God, how bitterly, bitterly is my curiosity punished this night. And now the young man sobbed as if his heart would break. Whither had flown his dreams of ambition? Where now were his hopes of emulating the career of his royal highness, the Prince of Montoni? The son of a highwayman. These were the words that fell ten times in a minute from his tongue. That was the idea which now sate, dominant and all-absorbing, but like a leaden weight upon his soul. And did he loathe his father? Did he curse the author of his being? No. No, a thousand times no. Deep, profound, immeasurable was the pity which he entertained for his sire. And if he loathed anything, it was his own existence. If he cursed aught, it was his own being. For, oh, terrible indeed was it for that fine young man, of lofty principles, generous nature, and soaring aspirations. Terrible was it for him to receive a blow so sudden, a shock so rude, a rebuff so awful. Better, better far had it been for him to remain in ignorance of his parentage, still to have looked on Mr. Hatfield as his uncle, and on Lady Georgiana as his aunt, rather than have learnt a secret which only prompted him to fathom collateral mysteries and clear up associated doubts. For the result of these researches was the elucidation which had flashed on him with almost lightning effect. Blasting, searing, scorching. A cursed book, he suddenly exclaimed, hurling the annual register across the apartment, as if the volume were a living thing, and endowed with human feelings, so as to be susceptible of the venting influence of his rage. But in the next moment he reflected that no trace of an untimely or mysterious visit to that library must remain, that none must suspect his pryings or his researches. For not for worlds, no, not for worlds, would he have his father or mother know that he had made the discoveries which characterized this memorable night. He accordingly rose from his seat, raised the volume from the floor, and turned to the bookcase to replace it. This act, so simple in itself, was destined to lead to a circumstance thenceforth influencing the entire destiny of Charles Hatfield. For as he thrust the volume back into the place on the shelf whence he had taken it, he heard a sharp abrupt sound, like the click of a lock. He was in that humor when every incident, however trivial, was calculated to assume an importance in his imagination. And, standing on a chair, he proceeded to examine the wainscoting at the back of the shelves, for which purpose he removed several of the books. To his surprise, he observed a small aperture formed by the opening of a sliding panel, and which revealed a recess in the wall of about a foot square, the violence with which, in his excitement, he had thrust the book on the shelf, having acted on the secret spring whereby the panel was fastened. Under ordinary circumstances, Charles Hatfield would have immediately closed the recess, in which he beheld a small leathern case and a packet of letters in the same way as he would have abstained from reading a manuscript lying on a desk, or evidently left about through inadvertence. 
but on the present occasion he was not his own master. His honorable feelings were triumphed over by emotions of the most painful nature, and it was impossible in this state of mind that he should avoid catching at any circumstance savoring of mystery, every such circumstance apparently linking itself with his own concerns. Thus, obedient to an impulse which he could not control, he seized the leathern case and the documents as if they were a glorious prize, and, returning to his seat, proceeded to examine them. The leathern case contained a roll of letters, and other documents tied round with a piece of ribbon so faded that it was impossible to determine what its color might have originally been. The writing in the papers was, however, still completely legible. The leathern case and the total absence of damp in the little recess, having preserved them for a period of half a century. Wrapped round the roll of papers in the case was a letter addressed to the Earl of Ellingham, and it instantaneously struck Charles that it was in the handwriting of his father, Mr. Hatfield. By the comparative darkness of the ink, it was of a far more recent period than the documents which it accompanied. But the precise time when it was written did not immediately appear, no date being attached to it. Without pausing to reflect upon the impropriety of violating the sanctity of correspondence, concealed with so much precaution, in a secret recess, but carried away by the influence of those feelings which we have above attempted to describe, Charles Hatfield devoured the contents of this letter. Though they are already familiar to the reader, yet for the purposes of our narrative we quote them again. I have sent you the papers, my dear brother, for so I shall make bold to call you still, to convince you that I did not forge an idle tale when we met last. Whatever your motive for abandoning me in my last hour may be, I entertain no ill-feeling towards you. On the contrary, I hope that God may prosper you, and give you long life to enjoy that title and fortune which in so short a time will be beyond the possibility of dispute. I promise to leave behind me a written narrative of my checkered and eventful history for your perusal, but need I explain wherefore I have not fulfilled this promise? T.R. His brother, his dear brother, gasped Charles Hatfield as the letter dropped from his hands, but his eyes remained intently fixed upon it. His brother, he repeated. My God, then am I the nephew of the Earl of Ellingham? Am I the cousin of Lady Frances, whom I already love so well? But gracious heavens, he ejaculated, as another and still more thrilling idea flashed to his mind. If Mr. Hatfield be indeed the brother of the Earl of Ellingham, as he assuredly is, then is he the elder brother? And if the elder brother, he himself should be the bearer of the title, and I, I should be a viscount. But, ah, perhaps my father is the illegitimate offspring of the late earl, and that this is the reason wherefore the family honors and estates have devolved upon the younger brother. And yet, what mean these words? Give you long life to enjoy that title and fortune which in so short a time will be beyond the possibility of dispute. Oh, here again is some dreadful mystery. Just heavens, what a faded, doomed family is ours. Doubt, uncertainty, secrecy characterize all its history. At least the experience of the last two days would lead me so to believe. At this moment, the young man's eyes fell upon the roll of paper which he had taken from the leathern case. And with feverish impatience, yet still with care, inasmuch as the documents were as fragile with old age as tinder, he proceeded to examine them. 
and oh, how deep, how intense suddenly became the interest with which he now perused the diary and the letters of the unfortunate Octavia Manners. His excitement was stilled. His impatience was subdued. A deadly pallor succeeded the hectic flush upon his cheeks. Still and motionless, said he, his eyes devouring the contents of those important papers. The frightful treachery of old death towards his half-sister, the beautiful but ill-fated Octavia, was revealed step by step. But there was likewise an elucidation which touched a chord that thrilled to the inmost recesses of young Hatfield's heart. And this was the fact that Octavia was wedded by the late Earl of Ellingham, previous to the birth of the child. Yes, there was the marriage certificate. There, too, was the certificate of the child's baptism. And that child was therefore, at its very birth, the heir to the proud title and the entailed estates of a mighty earldom. Here let us pause for a few moments to afford an explanation which now becomes necessary. If the reader will refer to the forty-seventh chapter of this narrative, he will find recorded so much of the history of poor Octavia Manners as Arthur himself was acquainted with. In relating that history to Lady Georgiana Hatfield, Arthur had stated that Octavia fled away from her vile half-brother's house the very day after her disgrace was consummated. For several months no trace was discovered of her. It was feared she had committed suicide. During that interval the first Countess of Ellingham died. At length the Earl, Arthur's father, accidentally discovered that Octavia was living, and that she was in a way to become a mother. He hastened to the miserable garret which she occupied, and found her in the most abject state of poverty, endeavoring to earn a subsistence with her needle. All his affection for her revived, with renewed vigor, and his heart smote him with remorse for the appalling treachery which he had perpetrated towards her. He saw her ruined in health, character, and spirits. Ruined by him, still surpassingly beautiful, but only a wreck of what she once was. He saw all this, and he was horror-struck at the effects of his crime. He threw himself on his knees. He offered her every possible reparation which it was in his power to make. And then, for the sake of the child which she bore in her bosom, she said, If you would prove your contrition, my lord, if you would impart one single gleam of hope, however faint, to my goal, you will make me your wife. It is not for myself that I demand this boon at your hands, for a boon it becomes when the violator espouses the violated. Yes, a boon in the estimation of the world, though only an act of justice in the eyes of God. No, it is not for myself, tis for our child. Think not that I, the sister of the marine store dealer, shall ever assume the name or adopt the rank of Countess of Ellingham. Let our union be secret." Only let it take place at once, so that our child may be legitimate. Thus spoke Octavia Manners on that occasion, and the Earl of Ellingham, her violator, consented to all that she asked. They were married with so much privacy that even Miranda, the faithful gypsy girl who had formed so strong an attachment to Octavia, remained ignorant of the important occurrence. But the very next day Octavia fled. No affection had she for the noble who had ruined her who had been the cause of her severance from the object of her first and only love. She had only asked him to marry her for the sake of the honor of their child's parentage. And, the ceremony being performed, she withdrew herself into the strictest solitude and obscurity, to brood over her woes and sufferings in secret. Such was the substance of that portion of Octavia's own diary, which revealed to Charles Hatfield the fact 
that the injured girl was indeed the Countess of Ellingham when her child was born. And that child's career could be traced, yes, satisfactorily traced, step by step, by means of the papers which the young man had taken from the leathern case, and the packet of letters that he had likewise found in the recess. And it was evident beyond the least possibility of doubt that the individual whom the world had known as Thomas Rainford, and whom it now knew as Mr. Hatfield, it was clear, even beyond the remotest ground of suspicion to the contrary, that this individual was the rightful Earl of Ellingham. Recollect, too, reader, that Charles Hatfield had become firmly impressed with the belief that he was the legitimate offspring of his parents. And now, therefore, conceive the wild enthusiasm of his delight when he came to the conclusion that he was in reality a Viscount by present rank, and had an earldom in the perspective. Forgotten was the fact that had ere now stunned and stupefied him, the fact that his father was the notorious highwayman Thomas Rainford. He thought of that no more, in the delirium of his rapture at the idea of having a noble title within his reach. But had he not on the previous day assured Lady Frances Ellingham that he envied only the greatness which had made itself, and not that which was obtained by the accident of birth? Yes, and at the time he conscientiously believed that he spoke his own thoughts correctly. Now, however, that the temptation appeared to be within his reach, it possessed charms and attractions of irresistible power. Recalling to mind the sounding titles of the object of his admiration and heroic worship, he began to fancy that the right honorable the Earl of Ellingham was not comparatively so very insignificant, even when uttered after the swelling appellations of his Royal Highness Field Marshal the Prince of Montoni, Captain General of the Castlesickelan Army, and heir apparent to the Grand Ducal Throne. Suddenly, as it were, we behold the young man, whose sentiments were so noble and generous, while he deemed himself to be a mere civilian, having every exertion to make in order to rise to eminence. Suddenly we behold him seized with an insatiable ambition, now that a coronet appeared to be actually within his reach. But did he contemplate the immediate adoption of measures to force his father to wrest the title and estates of the earldom from Arthur? We know not all that passed through the mind of Charles Hatfield on this fatal night. We can, however, aver that having fully perused the valuable documents which had made to him such important revelations, he did not restore them to the secret recess where he had found them, but secured them about his own person. Previously to quitting the library, he closed the sliding panel, and replaced the annual register in such a manner that the shelf did not appear to have been disturbed. The West End clocks were striking three, and the light of a July morning was streaming through the windows of the mansion, when Charles Hatfield retired to his own chamber. His first care was to consign to his writing-desk the documents and letters which he now considered to be the arbiters of his destiny. And, this being performed, he sought his couch. But slumber would not visit his eyes. Myriads of conflicting ideas were in his brain. He felt that he had to play the hypocrite, to keep a bridle on his tongue, to control every look and measure every word, until the time should come for proclaiming all he knew. For the present he would not distress his parents by allowing them even to suspect that the things which they considered to be such profound secrets were no longer so to him. No, he would endeavor to appear the same gay, frank, confiding, affectionate Charles Hatfield that he hitherto had been. These were amongst the principal reflections which chased sleep from his pillow until long past four o'clock, 
and when at length his heavy lids were weighed down through sheer exhaustion of the mental and physical energies, his slumber was agitated with wild and varying visions, and he awoke unrefreshed, and still suffering with the fatigue of his long vigil. End of section 17. Recording by Brian Keenan.